Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Childers. We're continuing our discussion from last week about homosexuality, specifically talking about the Reformation Project today. What is it? What do they claim? And how can we answer? We'll talk with Alan Schliemann in just a moment. Friends, welcome to the podcast today. I'm really excited to bring you this discussion because it's very rich in biblical truth. It's very rich in information. And I think and I pray and I hope that you'll find it really helpful. Before we jump in with Alan Schliemann, though, I want to tell you about a couple of really neat things we have going on with the ministry. Uh, We have launched officially our Patreon page. So if you're not familiar with what Patreon is, it's a way that you can partner with the ministry and essentially help us to get the word out to more people. that's That's our goal. That's what we believe God wants us to do. And so what you can do is go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. And then there are different options you can sign up for. If you want to support the ministry with $3 a month, then you will receive a monthly ministry update video. The one for May is already up. So right when you sign up, you'll have access to be able to see that. And then there are other tiers going up. There is a wonderful Patreon-only Facebook page that we have already started interacting in and really my vision for that Facebook group is to build community with like-minded people. So if you want to sign up for that tier, you can be a part of that Facebook uh, page. There's also a tier available that you can sign up for where you will receive exclusive bonus content for each podcast that we release. We are launching the podcast in June on the video format as well as the audio format. So if you're used to listening on iTunes, if If you're used to listening on SoundCloud, you can still listen on all the platforms you're used to listening on, but there will be the additional option to go to YouTube and to watch the video. And so that will be coming in June. And once we launch that, we are going to start releasing bonus content on each episode. So if you're signed up for that Patreon level, basically you're going to get a five to 10 minute video extra with whichever guest I have on the show for that week. So there might be a fun lightning round uh, question and answer time. There might be an additional question that we'll ask, but we'll just be uploading bonus content for that tier of the Patreon supporters. So please check that out. Again, that's patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. 
I also want to let you know that the podcast is now on Spotify. We've had uh, several folks ask about that, and so that's available now. And I also want to thank all of you who have left positive reviews on iTunes. I was absolutely stunned the other day when I went on to look and see what the reviews were looking like, and there are over 400 great reviews. So if you haven't done that yet, I would so appreciate if you would go over and leave us a great review. Again, just helps get the message out to more people. My guest today is Alan Schliemann. He's back for a, uh, the second part of our two-part series on Christianity and homosexuality, same-sex relationships, gay marriage. We're talking about it all today. Alan has uh, dedicated his life to talking about some of the most controversial issues of our time. So if you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you go back, listen to that. Although you could listen to this one uh, without having the foundation of the first. But in the first episode, we talked about the question, can... Christians agree to disagree about same-sex relationships, or is this something that we should divide over? So if you're interested in that question, go give that a listen. Today, we're going to talk about the biblical case that is often put forward in favor of same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships. So there is a very organized movement with biblical points and everything that I'm sure if you're on social media, you've seen some of these things come across your Facebook newsfeed or you've seen it on Twitter. And so we're going to just answer some of these points that are brought forth, particularly by an organization called the Reformation Project. And so, Ellen, I'm just going to bring you right in on this. Tell us what the Reformation Project is, and then I want to hear about when you went to their conference and what was your experience like there? What did you learn? Yeah, so the Reformation Project is an organization started by Matthew Vines, who is a, uh, a young gentleman who is um, who identifies himself as gay and Christian and does not think there's any contradiction uh, with regards to that uh, idea. And um, the, the, the mission really of, of the Reformation Project is to like the their title suggests, reform church teaching. It's to to look at the biblical text, to look at uh, Christian theology, and to reform that teaching, and to to demonstrate that the Bible and Christianity can be understood in a gay affirming way. And and I would suggest that they've chosen the term the Reformation Project specifically because they see their efforts in line with the noble reform efforts of Martin Luther. Right, and they believe that. Their reformation will be just as significant as that of Luther's. Okay, mm-hmm. and so uh, what they do is they are involved in equipping and training and educating conservative or otherwise conservative Christians, and having them to understand and interpret the Bible in a gay affirming way, and then sending those people back to their conservative churches to reform their church's teaching and make those churches also gay affirming. And so they do this by hosting a number of conferences around the country, different workshops and so on and so forth to train and equip their devotees and their their um, their followers to do this. So in one sense, it's kind of like what we do at Stand to Reason. I mean, our, our mission is to train Christians to be able to understand their convictions and share them with others. Right. Uh, they're sort of the, they're sort of doing the same thing, but with what I would argue are, is is a false teaching, which is the the uh, the idea of pro gay theology. So yeah. that's in a nutshell what yeah. what they um, advocate and what they do, what they're about. And, and, and they're and they're doing this on a grassroots level. I've I've heard uh, Matthew Vines even talk about this. This is something that they're trying to do, like on the small group level, and change minds mm-hmm. and from the bottom up. And so it's it's important that we think this through and that we know what we think about these things. And so in the last episode. We talked out just it kind of led naturally into talking about a couple of their points. We basically covered their point number one, uh, and that had to do with identifying good fruit from bad fruit. And the the Reformation Project would say, you know, you got to look to the fruit to know if something is is good or bad. And so, if it's producing happiness, it's a, if it's producing uh, flourishing, and and if people feel affirmed and loved and secure, then that's good fruit. But if it makes them, uh, you know, even bringing in depression and, and things like that, that's bad fruit. So we can look for that. We, we fleshed that out in the last podcast. So definitely give that a listen. And we talked
talked about the idea that the word homosexuality didn't even exist in English until the 1800s. What do we do with that when our Bible has certain things to say about homosexuality? And so today we're going to cover as many as the other ones as we can, as we have time for. But before we get into it, Alan, I want you to share with us your experience of going to this conference, because I love this about you. And I know Sean McDowell has had, you guys went together to the conference, I believe. And I love that you're willing to do that. I love that you're willing to go and interact with people that may not agree with you, and you're seeking to understand what they're, what they're teaching, what they believe. And uh, so, so share a little bit about that experience with us. Yeah, so you're right. Uh, Sean McDowell and I did go together. We flew out there. It was in uh, Washington, D.C., if I recall, several years ago now. But um yeah, we when we showed up, by the way, we didn't um, go there in sort of a secret way and or like, you know, try to hide the fact that we were there. Like we went up immediately and introduced ourselves to um, Matthew Vines. I think actually Sean and Matt had already met before, so it wasn't yeah. that they were unfamiliar with each other. But I introduced myself and said who I was from. And we assured them we weren't there to like disrupt their conference or anything. We're just, yeah. you know, there to sit and learn and see what they're teaching so that we can under, better understand their views you know, not create a straw man when we respond to them. I mean, we didn't tell them that's what we're doing, but that's certainly yeah. one of our desires is that we understand people so that we don't misrepresent them when we um, try to characterize their their arguments. Yeah. So, uh, the, you know, in one sense, the conference felt like any other Christian conference, right? You had, you know, worship and singing, you know, you had prayer, you had, you know, teaching, you had breaks and all that stuff. So in one sense, it's like I'm sitting there and, you know, you see all this, you know, we were at a church. And so there was all these, you know, joyful Christians singing and, yeah. you know, happy and seemed like great fellowship whatever. But in another sense, it was a little bit odd for Sean and I, because here we're standing next to pretty much everybody who either identified as LGBT in some way, or they were gay affirming, meaning they they held a view that said that, no, the Bible can be understood to be pro-gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's possibly some people there who didn't agree with that, but we didn't know of those people. So for, for, for the most part, we felt like we were you know the only ones who held that view. And so anyways, we sat through um, as many lectures and breakout sessions as we could. Um, as I said, they have they had you know formal lectures where you know Matthew Vines would teach or James Brownson would teach or David Gushy. In fact, I think it was I think David Gushy at that conference came out and formally announced that he was changing his mind, which I think is the title of his book mm. about. Um, you know, what the Bible says about homosexuality. So there were all these formal lectures that were given, but then there was breakout sessions. And this was interesting to note, at least for, for somebody like me, who also likes to be involved in training and equipping. And that is that they had us learn the material from the lecture, but then get into breakout sessions and then into smaller, um, smaller subgroups and then role play what we learned. And so, Mm. The, the biblical, or I should say the, the, the talking points that the Reformation Project has on their website were, were, were written in these talking points where, you know, we would take the position of, a, of an affirming or a non-affirming view, which, by the way, I don't like those phrases. I don't like those terms. Yeah. Um, but I'll just go with it for now just to yeah. kind of not be confusing. But so the affirming view, they would say, is the view that says that Yes, gays and lesbians can be included within the fellowship of the church, and there's nothing sinful about homosexual sex. And the non-affirming view would be, you know, your view, Elisa, and my view, or what we'd argue is the biblical view, right? Yeah. That, yeah, homosexual sex is sin, like many other sexual sins. It's not the only sin, but it's a sin, and you can't reinterpret the Bible to say it's not a sin. And so, what we were supposed to do is take turns role-playing the different parts um, of that. So, for example, you know, I would sit down at a table, and now most of the people at my table, I should say probably all the people, didn't know who I was. They just thought I was either a gay or lesbian individual, or I'm not a lesbian, sorry, <laughs> that I was either a, 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 some type of LGBT-identified person, mm-hmm. or I was a straight ally, as many people identified themselves. You know, yeah. someone who's straight, but is, um, you know, attitudinally in support of this view. So it was kind of funny at one point, because... Um, I took on I was asked to first role play the non-affirming position which is my actual view right, right? 
And so uh, one of the guys, you know, he had to take on the affirming, uh, the affirming view. So I began saying, you know, well, I think the Bible condemns homosexual sex as a sin. And so then my, my role play partner, who was a gay guy, um, he tried to say the talking points that the Reformation Projects Conference had taught him. And so he tried to do it. But, you know, for the average person, it's sometimes hard to role play like that. It's stressful. It's you're nerve wracking, whatever. But it came kind of natural to me because, you know, I do this pretty regularly. Right. And it was funny because then we had to reverse roles. And so I role played the non I'm sorry, I role played the affirming position. And I was making these these arguments in favor of pro-gay theology. And, and, um, and so they were like, oh, wow, you, you did that pretty well. I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. And so then they be, so after it was over, they asked me, the people sitting at my table, they're like, so, you know, tell us more about yourself. And as I began to explain, it dawned on them that actually I'm a Christian apologist and I don't even hold their view or, or, or I'm not a straight ally, as they called it. And they're like, wow, well, you, you seem to really articulate the pro-gay theology view quite well. I'm like, yeah, well, it's not because I hold it, <laughs> just right. because I, you know, I, I interact with these ideas a lot. So it was yeah. kind of, it was somewhat uh, funny at the time uh, that um, I was in that situation having to sort of role play both positions. But anyways, that's the kind of thing they're doing. They want people to role play because they know that um, saying these words, saying the, you know, the, the talking points makes it easier than when they go back to their churches to say them in a more quote-unquote hostile environment where people aren't going to necessarily agree with them. Yeah. And so so they're doing this kind of systematic training, and that's, you know, that's uh, bad news, really, yeah. <laughs> for people who hold the historic Christian view on sexuality. Well, and that had to be encouraging to know that they even affirmed that you understand their position because that's that's the goal, right? We want to interact with the real position, not like you mentioned a straw man or some sort of uh, you know caricature that we've invented. And so that's that's great. And so you know, I love that you were open and willing to do that. I love that you and Sean went and were just open about who you were and and what you're doing. But let's go ahead and dig into these points. And like I mentioned, we already talked about number one, and, and I'll just read how they word it. So their number one point is experience of sound Christian teachings should show good fruit, not bad fruit. We talked about that last time. But let's talk about number two here. So this is the biblical, you know, quote unquote, biblical point that Reformation Project is offering uh, to to support the idea that the Bible can support same-sex relationships. And so their point number two is this. The Christian tradition doesn't address sexual orientation. And so uh, they go on to say, in the ancient world, same-sex behavior was widely considered to be a vice of excess that might tempt anyone, mm-hmm. like gluttony or drunkenness. Uh, and so, you know, in comparing it with gluttony, it's like food isn't bad, but too much food is bad. And mm-hmm. so uh, they go on to say, same-sex attraction wasn't understood as the sexual orientation of a small minority of people. So affirming Christians are not overturning the Christian tradition on LGBTQ people until recent decades. Decades, they're claiming there has been no Christian tradition on LGBTQ people. So speak to that. Yeah, and it's interesting. I remember they also offered a number of examples of people in the first century that uh, they felt identified this kind of excess, right? The excessive lust or the excessive power control that masters had over their slaves. So they mentioned um, a first century Roman philosopher named uh, uh, Musinius Rufus, and then this other first century Greco-Roman orator, Dio Chrysostom, and they they had these quotes where they're identifying people who, you know, just having sex with uh, in a heterosexual sense wasn't enough. And so rather these people went into excess and had homosexual sex. And so, of course, um, this is what the Reformation Project is saying. That's what um, the biblical authors, when they're talking about homosexual sex, we're referring to, mm. okay, is that sort of abusive, excessive, going beyond what's regular and appropriate. That's the kind of homosexual sex that's in view. And and just so your listeners know, Elisa, because we I know we mentioned this in the first episode, but this is the heart of the Reformation Project's enterprise, is they say, look, the Bible does condemn homosexuality. It does condemn homosexual sex. But only abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms of homosexual sex. Mm. 
And so since modern day gays and lesbians do not engage in that kind of um, abusive, coercive, exploitive behavior, therefore the biblical prohibitions don't apply to them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that is in a nutshell, the, the main kind of argument that's woven through all of the points they bring up for the most part. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this particular defense that, that you just described is the same kind of thing. It's the that kind of homosexuality is what the Bible's talking about. And this is a very common tactic that advocates of pro-gay theology use. What they do is they find some ancient writer that's describing an extreme, abusive, coercive example of homosexual conduct, and then they assume that this behavior is what the biblical author is addressing. Right. Right? So, um, um, and so, uh, first of all, I would just say there's no biblical indication that the Apostle Paul or any of the biblical authors that condemn homosexual sex is referring to these first century authors that I mentioned before, the, you know, Dio Chrysostom or the other guy, right? Um, in fact, I would argue that all the evidence, biblically speaking, points in the opposite direction. Because every time the Bible prohibits homosexual sex, whether it's in the Old Testament Levitical passages or it's in the New Testament passages, every time the Bible prohibits it, it does it in absolute terms. In other words, the the you know very the six familiar passages on homosexuality, mm-hmm. um, all of them entail what I describe as a categorical prohibition against all forms. Of homosexual sex, not just abusive ones. Right. And let me just give, let me just give you an example. So the first mosaic passage is Leviticus eighteen twenty two. It simply says, "You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination." Notice that is a straightforward uh, condemnation of homosexual sex. Okay. Um, there's nothing in it that suggests that any particular type of homosexual sex is in view. Now, even if you were to consider the context, it wouldn't help you know, the Reformation Project's view. Because the verse before that is a prohibition against offering your children to Molech, you know, sacrificing them. The verse after is a prohibition against bestiality. So notice nothing even in the context of that verse suggests that any particular type of of abusive homosexual sex is in view. And for the most part, for the, furthermore, I would say, there's no exception being made for, for loving consensual homosexual relationships. And there's no exception being made for someone who might have a homosexual orientation, which is something that the, um, the original uh, defense that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, says, right? All of, so that Leviticus passage as well as Leviticus 2013, as well as the New Testament passages, all of them simply categorically reject any type of homosexual sex, regardless of whether someone has an orientation towards doing that or not. You know? Yeah. And in fact, the biblical authors have every opportunity to qualify their comments, but they never do. Right. Because it's it's not about um, what the Reformation Project suggests, that this is about excessive lust or power control. That's, that's all just, I mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to sound dismissive, but it's, it's kind of just fabrication. It's just fabricating this story, you know? Yeah. We'll be right back in just a moment to continue our discussion with Alan Schliemann. But I want to tell you about a wonderful ministry that I partner with called Impact 360. Impact 360 exists to help equip Christian young people to interact with the increasingly more post-Christian culture that they're growing up in. They facilitate several experiences. One of the experiences they facilitate is a nine-month gap year program. So if you have a high schooler in your life who might be interested in taking a few months before they go off to college to strengthen their knowledge of the Word of God, to grow in their knowledge of apologetics and theology, to grow in Christian community, to learn how to apply what they've learned intellectually in a holistic way with the people that they meet in their everyday lives to get them ready for that college experience. You're going to want to check out Impact 360's Gap Year program. You can go to impact360.org for more information.
Well, let's talk about celibacy because this is one that often gets tied in with the fruit, right? They, they say, you know, if, if someone experiences same-sex attraction, then you're basically condemning them to a life of celibacy, which is not going to produce good fruit in their life. That is something that's just overly harsh. It's demanding too much. And so here's how they word it. They say uh, their, their biblical point here is that celibacy is a gift not a mandate. And they say the Bible honors celibacy as a worthy calling, but it also makes clear that celibacy is a gift that not all have. And then they reference 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19. And Mm, they say, requiring that all gay Christians remain celibate for life because of their sexual orientation is at odds with the Bible's teaching on celibacy. So if a Christian encounters this claim online, what can they use to respond to this? Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting. A lot of the Reformation projects, um, these talking points or these these arguments they're making, there's oftentimes an element of truth to what they're saying. And so this this kind of makes you kind of want to buy into what they're saying because there's they're, they're quoting scripture and and sometimes they're quoting scripture correctly or they're making a a, a true biblical point. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they're saying celibacy is is a gift. You know, it's not a mandate, which I would agree, okay? <laughs> However, I think they fail to make an important distinction. And that is the distinction between um, celibacy and sexual purity. And mm-hmm. so let me let me define each one. So sexual purity is something that I would argue God commands for every believer in every circumstance to follow. Right? So mm-hmm. Paul, for example, warns Christians to abstain from sexual immorality. You know, this is uh First Thessalonians four, and and this abstaining from sexual immorality would apply to you whether you're married or unmarried. You know, mm-hmm. so so un, unmarried Christians, for example, whether you're heterosexual or you have same sex attraction, unmarried Christians are commanded to abstain from all forms of sex. That is not celibacy. That is simple, simply sexual purity. Mm. And I would argue married couples, by the way, are also required to be sexually pure in a way that's appropriate to their married situation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one thing, sexual purity. And I think that is different than celibacy, which is, is more than merely abstaining from sex. Celibacy is, is, a, is a life that's wholly devoted to God. You know, yeah. and and what it allows is a believer to dedicate his time, his talents, his you know, or, or her talents, resources, and everything completely to kingdom concerns, and and by doing so, you don't have to worry about you know the demands of of marriage and family and kids and all the responsibilities that are associated with it. Okay, yeah. so I would argue that the the requirement of purity, of sexual purity, applies to all Christians regardless of their gifting. In other words, you know, some people might be gifted with celibacy. That's true. Some people might be gifted with celibacy. But everyone is required to follow sexual purity requirements, whether they have same-sex attraction or not. And yeah. and I would suggest, and we've talked about Christopher Yuan, but I'd, I'd suggest his book, Holy Sexuality, um, uh, on this particular discussion about celibacy, because... Christopher Yuan experienced the same-sex attraction. He's trying to follow the commands of Scripture in Jesus. And so, um, you know, he's single, and, um, and, and he describes holy sexuality in a nutshell this way. He says, holy sexuality is about chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And, of yeah. course, he argues, like you just said, this is a principle that everyone needs to follow, not just somebody with same-sex attraction. So, anyways, I, I think that distinction between sexual purity and celibacy is where where they get this, uh, where they're mistaking this particular point. Yeah, because I've known people who were not experiencing same sex attraction, who just never ended up getting married, or they never, you know, found a life partner, and they that like you mentioned that same requirement of sexual purity was on them as well and so if you follow this to its log- logical conclusion like we mentioned in the last episode well does that give license to everybody who maybe hasn't met the person that they want to spend the rest of their life with you know permission to just indulge their sexual desires when they need that or you know it, it just it doesn't make sense when you really follow it follow it out because truly all of us as you mentioned are 
um, kind of held to the same standard. And so um, I don't think that celibacy should be viewed as this sort of... Uh, you know, death sentence in a way, because first of all, we know ne- you never know what God can do. I mean, look at Ros- Rosaria Butterfield, who ex- right. was completely living uh, in a lesbian relationship. She was a, a tenured professor of queer theory and, and just totally in that life. But then God saved her and she ended up becoming a homeschool mom with seven kids. And so you, you just never know what God is right. going to do in your life. And, and so, um, I, I think that there's a little bit of a lack of faith in that, in that, uh, point as well. Yeah. And, and at least I'd also add that, you know, you mentioned their, your friends who were single and, you know, never got married. Um, I bet they would not, if you asked them, do you have the gift of celibacy? They'd probably say no. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I have a friend who's, you know, um, who's, is in his fifties. He would love to be married. He, he would say, I definitely do not have the gift of celibacy. Right. But he doesn't have the option to engage in sexual acts that the Bible prohibits merely because he's now has a life of, uh, you know, without sexual fulfillment. Right. right. You know, um, yeah. Can I add one more thing? I'm sorry. Yeah, please. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say, I, I would, I would want to add that I think the church has done, well, I guess I'll just say it, a, a really bad job mm-hmm. of elevating singleness and single people in the church, and I think we've done our single people a disservice by somehow communicating to them. And I'm not saying every church does this, but I just I feel like a lot of churches do. Communicating to single people that their singleness is just a stepping stone onto marriage, that they are mm-hmm. not all the way there or that they are less than. And I think part of the reason why this celibacy argument is so powerful is because there is a genuine need for people who are single in the church to experience um, a life of being loved and a life of not being lonely. And I think if the church did what we're supposed to do, and that is to treat singles as fellow brothers and sisters in in the true sense of the word, that this wouldn't be as big of a problem as it, as it is today. Yeah. And, and, and Christopher Yuan goes into this in his holy sexuality books. I, I definitely recommend that if you want to know more about that. But I, I think there's, I don't want to, ignore the reality that I think the church has dropped the ball on this particular subject. Yeah. No, I have to agree, because growing up in the evangelical church, I, I remember when I got to be college age, I mean, none of my friends would have gone to the singles group, because the singles group was basically where you go to find, uh, you know, well, where the the older men would go to find wives. <laughs> I should say it that way. And so you knew right, you right. were just like, you viewed as a piece of meat if you walk in the singles group, because yeah. it, you're right. It was like the singleness, there wasn't a really robust theology on singleness. It was more like, let's just get the singleness over with and, right. you know, get to getting married. So yeah, no, I, I have to agree with you on that. Um, all right. So let's look at this, this one here. Uh, they're talking about the concept of gender complementarity. So often in, you know, in theology, this is a, this is a consistent theme, honestly, from Genesis to Revelation, this idea of both genders having a a complementary function with each other, both, I mean, physically, uh, emotionally, in every way, God made men and women in his image, male and female, he made them. And so, they're going to they're going to say this the reformation project will say gender complementarity is a set of social norms not a biblical teaching and so they go on to say this gender complementarity can refer to a variety of understandings of how men and women complement one another in ways that many non-affirming christians believe are necessary for romantic relationships to be moral for example gender hierarchy uh, you know the the man leading in the home i suppose is what they mean by that, and women submitting to their husbands. And then they mention procreative capacity and anatomical complementarity, of course, the the physical complementarity between the sexes. But then they go on to say, but the Bible does not teach that any particular understanding of gender complementarity is universally and exclusively normative. Um, And honestly, this one seems like the simplest to refute because so much of this is just common sense, but, but speak to this when they say gender complementarity is just a set of social norms. That's not actually what the Bible is teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah, I've actually, 
you're right. It, it, I, I kind of hear this and I think, well, gosh, isn't this obvious, right? It's not, yeah. you know, they want, they want to argue one flesh is referring to this kinship that, that, you know, in, in marriage, for example, you're just talking about kinship, meaning members of the same species, right? And so yeah, companionship, it's two men, right, companionship, right, right. And so, I mean, certainly Eve, for example, you know, going back to Adam and Eve, Eve was a suitable helper for Adam because she was human and not an animal. And this is a point that they make, you know, the way that um, uh, Eve complimented Adam was not necessarily because she was a female and he was male, but um, there was a um, they were of the same species and this is why she was able to be a um, a, a compliment or um, a kin of mm-hmm. Adam. Um, but the the problem is that immediately after God creates Adam and Eve, and uh, and talks about her being a suitable helper, He says, "Now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Right? Which yeah. obviously to obey that command would require more than simply species uh, than a species kin relationship. It would require a male and a female. In fact, uh, you know, I, I studied uh, – I was a physical therapist for many years, um, and so I had to study anatomy and physiology, and I was very familiar with – and still am to a degree – about anatomy and physiology. And I always was fascinated about the reproductive system because I often comment that it's the only body system that requires another person – of the opposite sex in order to achieve its ultimate function. Right. You know, in other words, like sperm and egg, if left within their respective hosts, would, would never uh, fulfill their ultimate sort of teleology. But yeah. the only way they can is if you bring a male and a female together in a, in a heterosexual sex act that you can um, achieve the ultimate function of the male and female reproductive systems. And that's very – that's the only system that I know of in the body that requires another person of the opposite sex to fulfill its purpose. Right. You have a complete so, skeletal system within your body. You have a complete nervous system just within your body, a complete, uh, uh, nerve. Did I say nervous system? I can't remember, but yeah. cardiovascular system, you have all of these systems that are complete in and of themselves. But that, that is, that is such an interesting point because your reproductive system, you really only have one half of one of those. You can't work all by right. itself. That's a great point. Right. Yeah. So I think from just a, a purely uh, physiological sense to obey God's command to be fruitful and multiply the earth, it, it requires this sort of complementarity. But then I think um, that the Genesis 2.24 statement about one flesh, this reference actually appears in another passage about marriage that I think eliminates any possible ambiguity about what God means about this notion of complementarity, and it's in Ephesians five twenty two, um, where uh, Paul's talking about um, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in marriage as a picture of what he says is the mystery of Christ and His bride, which is the church. Mm. In other words, you know, Paul in that in, in Ephesians five, he's delineating the roles of male and female, of husband and wife, and he says this is a picture for Christ and His bride, the church. And notice, the analogy can only work if gender differences are inherent to marriage and, and, and if, if complementarity is a real thing. And actually, I, I wrote down this quote when I was, was reading this particular objection. Mm-hmm. It's from Kevin DeYoung, and he says this. He says, the meaning of marriage is more than mutual sacrifice and covenantal commitment, which of course is what... Uh, the Reformation Project suggests it might be, mm-hmm. right? Marriage, he continues, he says, by its very nature requires complementarity. The mystical union of Christ and the church, each part belonging to the other but neither interchangeable, cannot be pictured in marital union without the differentiation of male and female. Homosexuality simply does not fit with the created order in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. 
So I, I think I think yeah. kind of says it in a, in a nicer way than I could have said it. So I just wanted to yeah. <laughs> quote him there. Yeah, and that's we recommended that book in the last episode. That's Kevin D. Young. I think that book is called "What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality?" We recommended that yeah. in the last episode by Kevin D. Young. It's a great one to get if you're uh, you wanting to dig deeper on some of these points. Uh, Kevin D. Young does a great job of answering these uh, these kinds of questions. And so the next point on Reformation Project's biblical case for inclusion or for uh, the affirming stance is they say this, the arc of scripture points toward inclusion, not exclusion. And so they go on to explain that in the Old Testament, those who were sexually different, like eunuchs and barren women, they were barred from entering the assembly of the Lord and they're referencing Deuteronomy for that. But they say within the text of scripture, we see greater inclusion of gender and sexual minorities. So one of the first Gentile converts to Christianity was an Ethiopian eunuch, and and they reference Acts 8. And so they're saying basically that the New Testament's trajectory toward greater inclusion of eunuchs offers important precedent for the inclusion of gender and sexual minorities today. So uh, do you think that's a valid claim? Do you think that we can look at barren women and eunuchs and compare that with uh, what's going on in the church today with this discussion over same-sex relationships? Uh, Well, in a nutshell, no. I mean, I I see where they're getting at, but the eunuch that they're talking about in um, in Acts 8 had a physical abnormality, no doubt about it. But by the way, he had a physical abnormality. He didn't have an alternate sexual desire. Okay. Right. <laughs> so right. just keep that in mind. And same with barren women. It's just a physical. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. So, and, and that he had this abnormality would not disqualify him from entering the kingdom of God. Well, I kind of want to say, duh. I mean, there's lots of yeah. people with all kinds of physical abnormalities. You know, uh, who's that guy? Nick is it Nick Vujicic? Yeah, who's yeah. the uh, guy? Life without limbs. Yes, guy. Like, he doesn't even have you know limbs. Right. So clearly, that has nothing to do with um, God accepting you into the kingdom. Of course, God can accept you into the kingdom if you have this sort of physical now. Uh, anomaly, right? Yeah. But this says nothing about what God is thinking, you know, in terms of moving towards greater inclusion of sexual minorities or however they put it. This is a this is what we call in logic a non sequitur. Mm. It it does not logically follow that because a eunuch was once not allowed to enter the assembly and then at some point later in the Bible we see he's able to go to heaven that that somehow means therefore God is sort of expanding you know his his sexual ethics, and he's allowing all kinds of sexual freedoms that were once prohibited. Right. Um, in fact, I would argue that uh, the trajectory in Scripture is not towards greater inclusion, but it's actually towards more strict sexual ethics. And, and an example of this is you know Jesus when he goes, "You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery." He goes, "But then I tell you, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his in his heart." Right. This is Matthew five. So Jesus elevates the demands of the law. He doesn't lower them to include sort of more diversity, right? right. Um, and then the other point I would just make with regards to this is the, the New Testament is not silent on homosexuality, right? right? Rather, it specifically identifies homosexual behavior and calls it out as sin in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, yeah. and in 1 Timothy 1. So, if there is ever any, if there's any ever any question or wondering about, well, what's going on in the New Testament? Is now, it, is it okay to engage in homosexual sex acts? Well, just go to the clear case passages where, that specifically address this question. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, honestly, a couple of these points are stronger than others. I this this one just seems like a bit of a stretch to me, to be honest, because they're, like you mentioned, they're taking people that have physical uh, problems, you know, phys- uh, something that's affecting them physically, but it's not, uh, it's not a moral issue. It's not a heart issue. It's, it's, right. it's not even really a sexual issue in the sense of that, like you mentioned, it's, it's has to do with an attraction or, or a temptation. 
And so it just kind of seems like that one seems like a bit of a stretch. I think we'll skip number six only because we don't have a ton of time. And this has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I honestly think you could actually remove this whole point and it wouldn't affect the case at all. That's right. Because there's so much involved with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we might even agree with them on a lot of what they're saying about that passage. Um, and, and so that could even be a whole episode. Um, but I don't think that that's even necessary for them to use that into make in making their case. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I do agree with it. And I, I just recommend it stand a reason we have, um, articles and videos that address the question and, and you can just go to our website and search, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? In fact, it's one of our most commonly, like if you look at Google analytics or whatever, it's like one of the most commonly searched for question and, and article and video on our website. Wow. So, um, we, we address it. So if you want, you can just refer people or I could send you later, um, yeah. some, sure. some yeah, we'll links post some to that. links in the podcast notes and let's yeah. go on to number seven. Uh, now this one is, is, is sort of, a big confusion, I think, for a lot of Christians is how to interpret the Old Testament Levitical laws. How do those mm. apply to Christians today? And we hear this all the time. Oh, you are against same-sex marriage, but you eat shellfish and you wear mixed fabrics in your clothes. <laughs> and, and so this is an important one to talk about. And so their biblical uh, point that they're making in support of their case is this. They say the prohibitions in Leviticus don't apply to Christians. And so they'll agree Levitiv- Leviticus condemns male same-sex intercourse, but the entire Old Testament law code has never been applied to Christians in light of Christ's death. And so they continue, moreover, the prohibitions of male same-sex relations reflect culturally bound concerns about patriarchal gender roles, which the New Testament points us beyond. So help us untie some of these knots that have to do with Levitical law, how that applies to Christians, is are these passages even relevant to us? How do we make sense of that? Mm, yeah, well, you know, like I said before, oftentimes they'll they'll make a point that has some biblical truth to it. And so um, they get some of it right, and this is an example of that. There, there is truth to what they're saying. Uh, the new covenant does supersede the old covenant or the Mosaic law. Uh, so it's true that we aren't bound uh, by the 613 commands or, regu- or Jewish regulations, you know, and mm-hmm. so I, I often point to the same examples they point to, you know, avoiding mixing wool and linen or planting two different kinds of crop in the same field or, you know, avoiding pork products. And it's like, thankfully, we don't have to <laughs> follow that prohibition right. because, because bacon, I love bacon right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, because bacon. Yeah. <laughs> Because bacon and bacon wrapped filet mignon oh, is yeah. is even amazing because you get the tenderness of the filet and the oh, yeah. flavor of the bacon. Oh, yeah. But I don't want to get off track here. Um, <laughs> but so so again, I I agree with what they're saying about this, but I think we have to be careful because it would be a mistake to think that the moral prohibitions that we find in the Mosaic Law have no moral relevance for New Testament believers today. Now. Jesus in the New Testament said he didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. And what that means is he satisfied its righteous, the righteous requirements of the Mosaic law that no one else could. But that didn't all of a sudden make these old um, moral prohibitions, these sinful acts, all of a sudden morally permissible. So, for example, you know, idolatry is still idolatry or you know, murder is still murder, mm-hmm. adultery is still adultery. These are things that are still wrong. And so the real question I believe that we should be asking is, do the mosaic prohibitions of same-sex behavior, that is, reflect a uh, temporal rules that are only for Jews uh, in the theocracy, or do they reflect some sort of universal moral concern that applies to everybody? Now, I mean, take... Uh, Leviticus 18.22, okay, because we've already mentioned that. You shall not lie with the males, one lies with the female, it's an abomination. Now, again, this is a clear condemnation of any type of homosexual sex. There's no specific type of homosexual sex that's in view, okay? Um, and again, if you read the verse in context, you see there's a prohibition against child sacrifice. You see there's a prohibition against bestiality. You see the prohibition against adultery and homosexuality. And I would argue it's no accident that all of these prohibitions are grouped together. Because if you keep reading the context in Leviticus 18, let's see, 24 through 26, what you'll see is 
Those prohibitions, those behaviors are the very behaviors that brought judgment on the Canaanites, which were a group of people who were not under the Mosaic law, who were not under the Mosaic covenant. But notice, the Canaanites not being under the Mosaic law did not free them from the prohibitions. Instead, the text says that the Canaanites were condemned and spewed out for their wickedness. In other words, there is some universalness. I don't know if that's a, really a word, <laughs> but there is some universalness to many of the ethical standards there. Okay, and so uh, the question then isn't, you know, um, well, it's just the old law, and so we can ignore it. I, I agree. Technically speaking, we are not bound by the Levitical prohibitions and so on and so forth. But you have to understand that many of these prohibitions were expressed because God's character is expressed in the Mosaic law. And then when God communicates the new covenant, those prohibitions show up again. You know, in fact, uh, the prohibitions against homosexuality are, are still present in the New Testament, right? In other words, even, even if you were to concede that the Leviticus text has no relevance for us, which I'm not saying is true, but even if you conceded that, it wouldn't negate the fact that the New Testament still has crystal clear teaching that homosexual sex is sin, you know. So I think those are two things to consider. One is the, is the universalness of some of these moral prohibitions that we see, you know, um, being applicable even to people who weren't under the Mosaic law. But even if you were to eliminate or, you know, just cancel out the Mosaic law in, in the sense that many people think of it, then you still have the New Testament text, which has at least three passages that clearly teach that homosexual behavior is a sin. Right. So this is why I don't think that argument will work to to, to substantiate the pro-gay theology view. Right. All right. Well, we have we dealt with number nine last week, um, which was the the two words that Paul uses, the words he uses to describe homosexuality. So let's let's uh, try to nail out number eight and ten uh, as we close out this episode. So. They talk about Romans 1. So they're talking about Romans 1, I believe, 26 and 27. And they're saying what Paul is talking about there in Romans addresses unrestrained lust, not sexual orientation. So they say in the ancient world, it was assumed that all people could be satisfied with heterosexual sex, but that some people went beyond it due to their insatiable lust, leading them to engage in same-sex behavior. So they say Paul isn't condemning being gay as opposed to being straight. He's condemning self-seeking excess as opposed to moderation, a, a concern made clear repeatedly by his use of the term lustful and by his description of people exchanging or abandoning heterosexual sex. So let me just read that verse so people know kind of what context that's falling yeah. in. So Paul says this in Romans 1, 26 and 27. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And that's the, the I believe that's NIV. Right. That's what they have on their website. So I read that straight from there. So yeah. let's talk about that idea. Is this, is this talking about more of like a, an excess kind of unrestrained lust or and not sexual orientation? Is there any validity to what they're saying here? Yeah, so this is um, this is the big kahuna, <laughs> yeah. this particular passage. In fact, when I was at the conference, I remember them stopping and saying, okay, guys, you know, this is the, the most devastating passage to our case. And so ah. they they recognize that this um, does not, you know, fare well for their view. And they wanted to spend some, you know, significant time explaining how they can try to, you know, well, they didn't say it this way, but undermine yeah, yeah. Uh, this particular teaching. Now, just so you know, Elisa, notice this is following the same pattern that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is they try to argue that the Bible, yes, it condemns homosexuality, but only abusive or coercive or exploitive forms. And here you see the same kind of pattern. Yeah, yeah. it's talking about same-sex behavior, but it's only the unrestrained, excessive lust kind of thing going on, right? Yeah. So therefore, you know, gay and lesbians today, they don't do that. They're not engaged in excessive lust. So therefore, what the Bible's talking about doesn't apply to them, okay? Right. Now, again, I mean, even though, well, I'll just say, it, I, 
I think they're inventing things here because even a cursory reading of Romans 1 tells us the passage is not talking about the conditions under which homosexuality is practiced. Rather, it's talking about the practice of homosexuality itself. Right. And I and I want to remind people that if you, you know, you read Romans 1, 26 and 27, but if you read the whole context of Romans, Romans 1 is a creation narrative. And in this narrative, Paul's talking about how God's made all things, he's made humanity, his, you know, attributes are seen in what has been made. And Paul says that the evidence of God's hand in creation is so obvious that men are without excuse, he says, to believe that there's a God that made what we see. And then Paul says, well, some people reject that obvious evidence of God's hand in creation, and instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creation, okay? Mm-hmm. And then Paul says, these people who are rejecting God and his obvious evidence of his design and creation, he says he gives these rebels over to their rebellious desires, and then and then he, and then he comes to that passage that you just read. Now, I just want to comment that um, I use an NASB translation when I'm doing kind of precise biblical study because the NIV is what we call a dynamic equivalent. It's mm-hmm. a thought-for-thought thought type of translation, whereas the NASB or the King James and, and maybe even a little bit of the ESV are more of a word-for-word word translation. Mm-hmm. And what what the NASB says is women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, um, men with men committing indecent acts. So I think yours said, the NIV said, uh, they committed, uh, they abandoned the natural relations or something like that? Uh, yeah. Natural, women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural yeah. ones. Right. So yeah. it's not too bad, but the, the reason I point this out is because the word uh, sexual relations that your NIV is using, or the one that they use, mm-hmm. and uh, the NASB says function. The word function there, or natural uh, sexual relations, is the Greek word krisis, which, according to the standard Greek lexicon, means use, relations, or function, especially of sexual intercourse. Mm. In other words, Paul is not talking here about proper or improper desire you know, like excessive lust or unrestrained lust. What he's talking about is proper and improper function. He, he's making a design argument. He, he's talking about how humans are built to operate. Remember, in the context of a creation narrative, God made humanity. He made humans. This is how they're made to operate. Men are made to function sexually with women and vice versa. And so, the error of homosexuality in this passage is when a man abandons that natural sexual function that a woman provides, mm-hmm. or when a woman abandons the natural sexual function that a man provides. And so, these people who who Paul's describing are doing this thing, they're rejecting the sexual companion that God designed for him or for her, again, in the context of a creation narrative. And so, when this person abandons God— uh, sorry, by by abandoning God, therefore he is, or she is, therefore abandoning God's design for him, you know? Yeah. And that's the point of Romans 1. Man rejects the obvious way God made humanity, and therefore he's rebelling against God. Yeah. And I would just remind your listeners that, again, there's nothing in this passage about co- abusive, coercive, or exploitive homosexual sex. There's nothing about restrained lust, right? Yeah. All you... All you have is Paul making this design argument basically about plumbing. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's yeah. like, hey, this is how you guys work together. And he says it in a creation narrative that has all kinds of allusions back to the Genesis 1 and 2 creation account. Yeah. So, this is why I say when you read the passage, you know, and again, just looking at it more of a little translation, even a cursory reading seems pretty straight that Paul's not talking about desires. I mean, he, he does mention desires. He says, um, uh, God gave them over uh, to degrading passions, right? Yeah. Why is it a degrading passion? Because it's a passion that causes you to abandon proper function. <laughs> right. You know? So, and again, 
there's no exception anywhere in this text that is made for a loving, committed, self-giving same-sex relationship the way um, the Reformation Project tries to characterize it. So. Yeah, you really kind of have to impose your worldview onto this text to make it say what they're saying it says. You have to almost assume from the get-go that what they're saying is right and then read it within that context, which of course is not the way any of us should be interpreting the Bible. We should be seeking to understand what the writer was communicating and and what it, it meant to the person writing it, what God is trying to communicate through it, and uh, and not trying to press our own theology into it, which it seems like that's what's going on. But let's uh, let's hit this last one here. So this is number 10. Marriage is about covenant. And so they explain this by saying, according to Ephesians... Marriage is fundamentally about commitment, keeping our covenant with our spouse as a reflection of God's own covenant with us through Jesus. They say the Bible doesn't teach that marriage requires procreation or gender hierarchy. Instead, it teaches that the essence of marriage is covenantal love and faithfulness, and Christian same-sex couples live out that vision of marriage every day. So they're essentially saying when God created marriage, when he established that as a, as a covenant, he didn't mean for that to only be within the context of male and female. It doesn't, you know, being married doesn't require you to have kids. In fact, I've even heard they'll, they'll say, well, there are plenty of couples who can't have kids. So, you know, obviously that can't be right. And it doesn't necessarily require that uh, one submit to the other in, in a gender kind of hierarchy, like women submitting to her husband. Instead, it's just, it's just that this covenantal love and faithfulness, and that's what it's representing. So how would we answer that? Yeah. So it's interesting that they say that Ephesians 5 is a foundational text on marriage. Well, I would agree that it's an important text on marriage. I wouldn't say it's foundational because a foundational text, the way I understand the word foundational, means that everything else is built upon it. So mm. <clears throat> that would be more like Genesis 1 and 2. Right. <laughs> I would argue right. it would be more foundational. And it's not surprising then that Ephesians 5 actually does refer back to uh, Genesis chapter 2 and the Genesis kind of creation. And so the way Paul gets here is he first uh, delineates the marriage roles in Ephesians 5, which is the passage that they try to cite, right? Mm -hmm. But notice, even Genesis, I'm sorry, even Ephesians 5 presupposes that marriage is a gendered institution requiring male and female differences, requiring a husband and a wife, not just, you know, two spouses, as they say. Yeah. And that's the whole point of the passage. But then towards the end, Paul references Genesis 2, um, uh, Genesis 2.4, um, Paul, which, which he actually quotes. He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so by referring back to this creation account, Paul is pointing out the normative pattern for marriage, Right. Because yeah. this is a, this that is a foundational text, Genesis one and two. This is the way marriage was when God made humanity at the beginning, even before sin entered the world. This is how it's supposed to be. And then, and I think I already made this point. I forgot if it was in this podcast or the previous one we did. But mm -hmm. Paul goes on to say that the marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of Christ and His bride, the church, and. This analogy only works if there are actual sex differences in marriage. Yeah. Oh, actually, that, that was in this podcast because I, I quoted Kevin DeYoung. Yeah. Because I remember, I remember that reminded me of that passage. So, okay, repetition yeah, and, is good. Yeah. We need repetition. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of their points, you know, sometimes carry over into other points. But True. anyways, I, I think you, you couldn't make the case that Paul's analogy of Christ, or I should say, not Paul's, the Bible's analogy of Christ in the church is represented in a marriage relationship unless you have sex differences in marriage. And the Bible always presumes a male-female marriage. Every, every command, every example, every poem, every analogy presumes a heterosexual marriage. And yeah. um, it, it, actually, when Paul makes that reference to Genesis 2-4, the one flesh union— it's interesting to note that a male and female coming together to create a one flesh union is the only pair of people. The, a male and female are the only group to ever be described as creating a one flesh union. No other pair of people, no other individual, or no other group is ever described as being able to create a one flesh union except for a married man and a woman. 
So again, I see all this positive evidence for understanding that marriage is really about this covenant that requires sex differences and nothing about it um, just being, uh, you know, needing or being able to, to do it with just two spouses. Yeah. All right. Well, that's we covered a lot of ground. We've got a lot to think about. Uh, again, we'll ju- I'll just repeat the book recommendations that we talked about last time and have even talked about in this episode a little bit. Kevin DeYoung, his book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? You can get Sam Alberry's book, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, if you're feeling fancy and you want to read a scholarly work, get Robert Gagnon's The Bible and Homosexual Practice Text and Hermeneutics. And even though it's a, a bit of a more scholarly treatment, I found it pretty accessible. I think it was fairly easy to understand, but it goes a lot in a lot more depth in all of these things. So if you really want to get to the bottom of it, uh, check out that book. So Alan, thanks again so much for taking the time to come on here. And thanks for all the ministry that you do. And again, for listeners, check out str.org for more from Alan blog posts. He's got a podcast, lots of great stuff there. So Alan, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Elisa. Thanks for having me on. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to elisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Go to patreon.com slash elisachilders to learn more about how you can partner with the ministry. See you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.